Um, it is good to be back over summer. I know that uh, for many of us, uh, we've been here, there and everywhere and there's been family, there's been travel, there's been, um, you know, busyness and various other things. But um, to be back and, and diving into the routine of maybe um, kids getting back to school this week and all that fun stuff. Um, I, um, I, I want to talk to us today uh, from one particular um, verse. It's in 2 Chronicles 7, um, verse 14. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open, open there. <clears throat> We're going to highlight um, and jump in there in just a few moments. But um, over the summer, I've been, um, I've been on this journey with, with God, um, really for, for myself, as I've been thinking and praying um, for our city. And, um, and through this process of, of, I think God, for me personally, just stirring again my heart towards this city that we're in. And, and of course, when we talk about the city, it's a, very, it's a very grand thing. But when I think about the city, I think about the infrastructure of our city, the people groups, the, the, the various different regions, the, the work, the school systems, the, the people and the, and the systems that are connected to our city that bring life and make our city run. And, and I've been uh, just again diving in with God uh, as to his hopes and his dreams and what he wants to do in our city and the transformation that he wants to bring to lives, to situations, to families, to neighborhoods, to society, to workplaces, to the poor, to the vulnerable, to the lost, to the lonely. His heart is very much pointed towards our city. And uh, I was even encouraged, I was at a conference, uh, a national student conference, even this weekend, and and uh, during one of the worship times, um, the Lord stirred, this was down in Oxford, the Lord stirred the guys who were leading the meetings just to pray for Manchester. And just even seeing a, a bunch of guys, students and student workers from, um, from Manchester pile to the front. And again, just for, for people from around our city to be focusing and pointing their attention towards what God is going to do in and through our city. And I think as I've been going through this journey with God this, this last couple of months, I've I've been stirred as he's pointed me back um, to the narrative of Scripture where he gets involved in the, in the story and the narrative of cities, where he gets involved in regions, in, in, uh, in, in towns and cities, and where he brings about radical transformation and where, where he breaks into a story, a history of a nation and brings restoration and rebuilds and, and uh, brings life where there's darkness and and I'm drawn to those stories throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's, it's stories like uh, Jonah and Nineveh. It's, it's stories like Elisha where he goes and uh, the prophetic uh, act of taking a bowl and some salt and taking it and putting it at the source of the water. And it was all part of God's plan to heal the land. You know, the land was barren, but through this prophetic act and Elisha's obedience, the, the land was healed and made fruitful. It affected the agricultural system of the, of the region. It's it's stories like Zacchaeus, who, uh, this man who is, is, is actually bringing devastation to the financial structures of a, of a town. And, and he has this encounter with Jesus up a tree and then he goes back and, and as Jesus meets with him and encounters uh, the love of Jesus, his, his life's restored and brought back into line. And actually off the back of that story, actually there is restoration in the financial structure of that town. Like God brings around uh, restoration and breaks into the stories of cities and towns and regions. And, and I'm encouraged by that. It's the story of when, when, um, 
when Jesus goes across the lake and he's in, in the boat and he, he, and he encounters the, the man who's, who's been oppressed and demonised. And he, this, this man is synonymous to the towns and villages in this region. And, and Jesus meets this guy and sets him free. And we know the story that this guy he was, uh, was naked and bound by chains. And, and then all of a sudden he's sound in his right mind and clothed. And, and Jesus, uh, this encounter with Jesus changes this man's life. And he goes back into the villages and the towns and he tells his story in this once crazy guy that everyone knew about had been restored, he'd been fixed, he'd been made right. And all of a sudden, there's revival breaking out in the towns and the villages and the regions because people heard about what Jesus did. And I'm stirred by these stories where whole regions and towns can be impacted by the reality of the kingdom. But I'm finding as I dive into these stories that, that um, these stories are not about nations impacting nations or other cities suddenly somehow rising up and impacting other cities, or, or regions taking what they've learned or what they've experienced and depositing it in other regions, it often starts in the life of one individual. And I'm stirred, I'm encouraged, because when I think about this room, I know that we're a room of people who are following Jesus, not so that we can come to church, but so that we can live up to the assignment that's on our life, which is to reach our city. It's you mums in the room or dads who will meet people at the school gates this week and you'll share the love of God and you'll show and demonstrate and show the kingdom of heaven to the people that you love around you. It's those in your workplace who as, you, as you're dedicated to your work and, you, and it's worship unto the Lord that you begin to shift the atmosphere in your workplace. It's those of you here who have sick neighbours who you know God's asking you to step in and pray, uh, and, and pray for them to be healed. That's the way the situation of our city begins to be orientated towards restoration. It happens through the lives of individuals. But I'm stirred that actually even in Scripture, um, it, it's not necessarily always just the, the one person meeting another person, but actually the, in the heart of one person or the, the motivation or the, or the actions of one person, a whole city or a region or even a nation can be transformed. That brings me great courage for my own city. And so I, I want to look at one particular verse just to, to pull on the threads of some, uh, uh, something I think God is helping us to understand about how we orientate our lives in such a way where we become a conduit for the transformation that he wants to see in our city, in the lives of people around us. And it's 2 Chronicles 7. Verse 14. Context of this verse is that um, Solomon had been rebuilding the temple and um, he got to the point of, of, of finishing this building project. And, and at the end of that, there's this um, season of a few weeks of some pretty dramatic things happening. At the point when Solomon finishes, a fire of God comes down and, uh, and out of nowhere sets alight the burnt offerings in the temple. And it, it starts a whole succession of uh, a festival and dedication of the temple to God. And Solomon, at the end of this whole project and at the end of this whole uh, exciting kind of fervent uh, moments of encountering God as he dedicates the temple, he rests and God meets him and speaks to him. And that's the, <clears throat> the verses that you find here in 2 Chronicles. I want to pull out verse 14, try and learn some things from it. It says this, <clears throat> so, so Solomon's gone to sleep, um, he's gone to rest and he encounters the Lord. The Lord meets him in the night. And this is what it says. This is what the Lord said. If my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek, which is to crave, to require as a necessity my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear them from heaven 
and I'll forgive their sins and I'll heal their land. I want to dive into actually one very particular word in that verse. There's a whole myriad of things that we could pick up from these verses. Uh, Our journey of humility, our journey of turning from our sin, our journey of, of how do we orientate our life towards God. But there's this one word right in the middle of that verse that I want to pull on. And it's this concept of what it is for us as followers of Jesus to really seek him. Now listen, this, this word seek that, that God used as he spoke to Solomon wasn't, <clears throat> wasn't simply a, just a vague concept of, you know, when you think about it, when it comes to your mind, when it comes to your attention and the busyness of your life, maybe think and seek me. This context of the word seek that the Lord's instructing Solomon and therefore actually instructing Israel, God's people to orientate them in su- themselves in such a way has a profound, deep meaning. And it breaks down into those two words. And I read from the Amplified Version because it just helps unpack the original translation. And the two, the, the two concepts that are derived in this, in this word seek are the, are the words crave and the concept of, of requiring as a necessity. To crave and to require as a necessity. And I hope that maybe this morning we can hold... <coughs> the lens of, of this verse up, up to our own lives and just allow it to, to shine on our own lives and ask the questions, how am I orientated? In my relationship to God, how am I orientated? Does, does this concept of seek, does it, is it reflective of how I live? Is it reflective of how I orientate myself towards the Lord? I'm just going to cough. Um, it's a crave. It's a pretty pretty uh, uh, expressive word to crave. How many of you have ever um, been to the uh, west coast of America and, and eaten at In-N-Out Burger? All right, some little chuckles, some little, you know. I'm a... In-N-Out Burger is, is literally one of the finest burger establishments in the world. Um, it, it only exists on the west coast of America because when they, uh, the burgers that they make, the burger, all they do is burgers, fries, and milkshakes. Um, the reason why actually they can only have In-N-Out Burger on the west coast of America is because this whole concept of how, they, uh, how their restaurant is that it's only fresh uh, produce that is delivered to the restaurant on that day that gets served that day. There's no freezing of the potatoes. There's no addi- additives. There's nothing. It's fresh meat. Um, that arrives at the restaurant that day, it's fresh potatoes. They put a little sign on the door and they tell you where the potatoes were grown and where they were delivered that day. It's super fresh. It's amazing. Um, how many of you have had In-N-Out Burger? Just so I'm just done preaching to the converted. All right. Tr- the transformation that is burgers. Um, this is what I've come to discover about In-N-Out. Sometimes when I fly to the States, I, I, I go um, and land at LAX Airport, uh, Los Angeles, and, um, and there's, there's an In-N-Out burger that is literally two minutes around the corner from, um, from the airport. And here's the thing. I, I um, pretty much every time when I land, I'll go get my rental car and I will go straight to In-N-Out. Straight to In-N-Out. And what I found is that I'm not the only one that's thought about that. Because when you go into In-N-Out that's two minutes around the corner from the airport, it is ram-packed full of people with wheelie bags 
and all of their luggage, because it's in a pretty sketchy area of LA, so no one ever leaves their luggage in the car. They bring it all in with them. And so you've got literally people from every nation and usually locals that have flown in that day who have literally landed. And obviously the first thing they've done, got their luggage, picked up a car, gone to In-N-Out Burger. That, no one locally from LA would ever go to that In-N-Out because you just know, I'm never going to get served here because there's just people from all over the world that have come to In-N-Out Burger. But here's the thing that I realized that often when I'm that last kind of, you know, when the, when the pilot says we're about 30 minutes out from landing, I start to think. I'm like, that plain food that I had was barely food. Let's not call it food. And I'm starving. And all I'm thinking about is in and out. All I'm thinking about is that chocolate shake. All I'm thinking about is that double-double, probably animal-style fries. That's what I'm thinking about. So I'm descending, you know, I'm not listening to anything else. I'm just thinking, I'm meditating. I am craving that In-N-Out burger. And then I go join the several other hundred people that have been thinking the same thing on their descent on their plane. They've been thinking, food is terrible. All I want is that burger. All I want is those fries. And so we, we, we find ourselves together in a corporate expression of joy in, uh, in In-N-Out burger. But here, the, the process of that started a lot further further behind. It started in the air. It started as I just began to think and you, you, I began to crave. And this, this craving for this in and out burger, what it does is it causes you to put aside other things that you maybe need to prioritize. Because it's like when you're thinking, like often when I land in LA, I've got somewhere to go and I've got usually things to do. And, but the fact is I put all of that aside <laughs> and I know that I'm going to get my car and I'm going to go, go get in and out burger. And this craving, it begins to start to affect how you make decisions. It, 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 I mean, how many of you, this is my, my life when I'm on the West Coast of America. You, you type in where you're going in your sat-nav to get somewhere, and then you do, you do that thing that helps you find a destination on your way, and it's always in and out. Everything that I'm doing, because you, you're only there a few times a year, West Coast of America, you've got to get it. So it's every meal, sometimes twice a day. But there's this craving that I have in and out burger that it, it changes the way I think about what I'm doing. I push certain things aside. I prioritize what I'm doing around mealtimes. And it's pretty much just eating in and out burger. But here's my thing. Craving really is something that I think is far more than simply just a when I think about it, if I'm interested, if I happen to be inclined type feeling. It's a desire that sets something going in, my, in, in, in the inside of my life that begins to challenge and change how I prioritize, how I make decisions, what I do, and ultimately how I orientate the course of my life. And this is what the Lord was saying to, to Solomon to instruct the nation of Israel. He was saying, I want you to seek. Not when you think about it, not when you're in need, not when you necessarily um, have something going on that might, think you, might cause you to think about the covenant relationship you have with, with, with me. It was, no, I want you to seek at such a level where you crave, where you hunger, where you desire, where you begin to set the course of your life according to this internal desire and design, which is to be with me, to be connected to me. And remember, that was the first thing. That was the, that's the first concept that's connected to this, this idea of us seeking. And remember, it's all tied to if we, if we do that, if we orientate our lives towards that, God will forgive our sin and he will heal our land. 
There's something in terms of how I orientate my life in relation to God and the level to which I do that, that has an impact to my city, right? And so waking up to this, this much deeper, profound concept of how we live and orientate our life, it, it doesn't just impact me, it, it impacts everyone around me. And the second idea that comes from this word seek is, is, to, um, is to require as a necessity. To require as a necessity. It invokes a, a concept and an idea of a level of dependence. Again, this is not a, uh, I, I don't, this is not talking about um, an idea where it requires a, a, as and when. It's not an as and when concept. It's a, it's a, I recognize my complete and utter dependence on you. And I begin to orientate my life towards that. I recognize and recognize uh, moment by moment my need of who God is. And I orientate my life as such. When Sarah and I got married, we, um, we do what many people do, which is you get a wedding list together, right? And these days, it's, uh, it's a lot easier. I've seen like young couples running around John Lewis with this gun, just firing at every 60-inch TV they can possibly. You know what it is. Like back when we, we they had the internet back when we got married, just. But um, you'd go on the internet, you'd look at what you, and you could, you could, you could click and you, or you could write down a list of what you, what you wanted from John Lewis on your wedding list. And, and, um, and we, were very, we were very sensible. We did, did what probably most couples do, which is, you know, I know I'm going to need to sh- take a shower when I'm married, so I'll put a towel on the list. And I know that I'll need a fork because I'll probably eat. We'll probably eat, won't we? So let's get some forks. And you put the stuff that is like, you know, you, you think you need. I remember, though, I was, uh, I was going through this whole process. And I'm far more impulsive than Sarah, those of you who know me. So, you know, the list was full of towels and, and um, full of cutlery, which is wonderful and great. I came across this thing, which I discovered this morning, is called a Lazy Susan which is no disrespect to any Susans in the room. It's not a commentary on, on your work ethic. It is, in fact, a circular uh, piece of furniture that you place in the middle of a table and allows you to spin it around and you can deliver food to the other side of the table. Which I think, as I was thinking about this morning, I think it harks back to some like, pleasant memories as a child of going to Chinese restaurants with my family and just like trying to spin the, spin the food into my sister, if I'm being honest. That was... It just, it harked me back to those kind of memories. But I was like, Sarah, we have to get, we have to get this lazy Susan. We have to get, I didn't probably call it this. We have to get this spinny thing. Need the spinny thing. Like just, and then I, with like with many things I have to do with my Sarah, with my wife is I give her an idea and then I have to convince her and then wear her down and convince her and wear her down. Uh, but I was like, babe, just think about it. We'll have people round and they'll be on the other side of the table and they'll want food and we can pass it round. It'll be like, it'll just build the infrastructure of our community and friendship and, and really it's at the heartbeat of who we are as believers and the church community running together, the heartbeat of community. Let's buy this lazy Susan. It's going to change our ministry forever. So we did. We, we bought the, um, the wooden lazy Susan. And 10 years later, when uh, we moved house, I discovered the Lazy Susan that uh, was in the same uh, cupboard that I put in 10 years previous when it arrived. I must point out at this point, I don't know who uh, you may, there's people in this room that were at my wedding. Thanks for being there. 
Uh, thanks for buying anything off the list. If you bought the Lazy Susan, we massively appreciate your heart and generosity to sow into our life. I just have to cover that base. Um, but here's the thing. We never used that Lazy Susan once. Uh, I think we might have burnt it. it. So it did become firewood. So it, for a brief while, it may have... Well, I was going to throw it away, so you might as well burn it. So we burnt it, I think. Um, but here's the thing. A lot of the time... We have things in our lives that we think are necessary, that we think are pivotal to, to the success of our life. But actually when it comes, when it boils itself down to it, often in the process of prioritizing, the process of, 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 of through craving that which we know we're to desire, we begin to start to realize that actually there's a lot of stuff in my life that's just not necessary. And actually, um, you know, even just the process of in prioritizing uh, uh, the process of, of simplifying actually helps us begin to hone what is really necessary. And what the Lord was trying to tell Solomon in this, in this encounter with him as he was beginning to start to say, look, this is what I want the, my people to look like. This is how I want my people to orientate themselves towards me. He was saying, look, I want you to crave. I want there to be a deep desire, a deep hunger that orientates your life towards me. And I want you to also, in the midst of, midst of that, I want you to know that, that this relationship is a requirement as necessary. It's not a requirement of option. You know, I think we, you know, one of the things that I, I'm all too aware of in my own journey with Jesus is that there are many things about the normal Christian life that I can just get on with by myself. And I don't need Jesus. But that was not part of the deal. It, was not, it is not part of the normal Christian life to outwork aspects and practices of the normal Christian life devoid of my relationship with Jesus. And in fact, I would dare to say that the expression of the normal Christian life starts with the integration of me and him. And how that love relationship forges and forms and encourages and inspires me to live like him. That's the whole process of, uh, of, of being a disciple, being an apprentice, is one who is, is both with Jesus and is like Jesus. So the thought that I can somehow get on with sort of religious practice and think that that would be devoid of my need of him is ridiculous. Jesus, uh, he went after this. He went after this with the religious leaders of the day, with the Pharisees. He oftentimes would, would look at the way that they would behave, that the way that they would speak, and he would call them out because they had all of their behaviors lined up. They had all of their language lined up to, to the law but it was devoid of a heart relationship with God. It came, it came out of pra a practice of duty and obligation, not out of love. And Jesus would call him on it all the time. There's this moment, even in Mark 6, where he calls him out and he says this, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you hypocrites. He uses this phrase hypocrites, which literally means play actors or pretenders. That, that behavior-wise, they were, they were playing at being religious. And then Jesus goes on to, to actually quote from Isaiah 29, and he says this, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy about the hypocrites, as it is written, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. They can do all that they do, but they have not realized that I'm necessary in the equation. 
that their hearts are to be connected with mine. We're to be connected because I'm necessary in the equation. Actually, when you, when you read, you go back and read Isaiah 29 verse 13, it, it, it unpacks it and, it and it says this, because this nation approaches me only with their words and honors me only with their lip service, but they remove their hearts from me and their, um, their reverence for me is a tradition that is learnt by rote. And, and what rote was is, is this concept of, of uh, ultimately, it's like being mechanical. So when Isaiah was saying this, he was saying, you, you know, we're not to be people that function out, out of a mechanical relationship. The other way to describe rote is habitual repetition. And that's what Jesus was confronting with these religious leaders. He was, he was looking and saying, you know, what you say from your mouth and where the posture of your heart are just worlds apart. And there's this sense where if we're to be people for our city that are orientated towards our relationship with God in such a way where we require him as a necessity, that that requires far more than just a tokenistic approach to our relationship with him. Craving him and who he is and turning our lives and orientating in such a way where he is the first and the foremost, it takes a very different approach than an external religious habit. I want to give you three things that kind of disseminate this down. Three things that I think are helpful. You know, as, as the Lord was speaking to Solomon about the nation of Israel, God's people, and as, as these verses speak to us as God's people, as we think about how our lives are orientated towards him and ultimately how that ultimately is part of what God wants to do in healing our city, there are three things just really quickly I want to throw into the mix. Firstly, there is a process of prioritizing. To fully crave, to orientate our lives in such a way we have to prioritize. And that priority is just like in and out. I don't care where I've got to be. I don't care what schedule I'm on. I'm getting my car. I'm going to go get a burger because I crave that thing. But with the Lord, it's like I don't care what else is in my life, whatever the distraction may come, whatever priority the world may give me, what anyone else might say I've got to be doing. First and foremost, foremost, I am orientated towards God. His life in me, through me. And guys, listen, um, I genuinely believe that the part of this um, culture that we live in is such a complex, uh, such a, um, a, yeah, it's complex. And so this process of, of, of prioritizing, I think, starts with the process of, of simplifying. You know, what are all the voices? What are all the things? What are all the places where I've given my heart and my attention that are constantly vying for the first place of my attention, which is with God? What are all those things that are pulling me in all sorts of different directions? Actually, do I need to put those aside? Do I need to simplify as I prioritize? The second thing is this. I believe there, there is a, there's a re-energizing that God wants to bring to our lives. I think that it's very easy for us to have a, a moment of encounter with God in our history that sparked a pursuit of him that very quickly becomes lifeless, that becomes a sense of, well, I'm doing this because I think I ought to or I once knew a time when this was good for me or that I think, and it becomes duty-bound and obligated. You know, maybe there are things in your walk with God that have become mechanical or, or habitually repetitive. 
I think we can invite God to come in and breathe on those areas of our lives and to allow the Spirit to re-energize those areas of our life, to bring them back to a heart connect with God, not simply just a practices assignment. It's a heart-to-heart connect with God. Listen, that concept of craving, craving is not a gift of the Spirit. We can't get to the end of the meeting this evening and go, Holy Spirit, would you fill me with craving? It's a discipline. It's a discipline. And in that process of, you know, Timothy talked about it in terms of that, that, we, might, um, that we might fan into flame. There's a concept where we, where we take responsibility for that which is ours to stir up. But I think as we prioritize, as we simplify, as we allow the Lord and we partner with that process and we allow ourselves to, be, to fan the flame. But finally, I think the, the, the final thing I want to leave you with is that, is that this whole area of, um, of necessity, of re- required as a necessity, I believe it, it, it requires us to step out of the boat. Here's the thing. You, you look back at stories like um, with, with Peter when he's in the boat and he sees Jesus on the shore and he gets out. We, we, we love those stories of radical faith. But listen, when, Jesus, when Peter was sat in the boat and he saw Jesus, there was no requirement while he was sat in the boat. The requirement of necessity of Jesus in that moment only took effect as he took his foot and stepped out of the boat. There's a moment when his foot touched water when he realized, I'm at the end of my natural, I need something supernatural. And I feel like the same, it's the same for us. If we've got to the point where actually we've, we've, been, we've remained content with being in the boat, that there's a lot of safety around our Christianity, the way that we live for Jesus, that ultimately there's no need of him because we have it all together naturally. We're doing the church thing. We're doing the reading our Bible thing. We're doing our prayer thing. Those are all good things to do. But in essence, if they're devoid of a heart relationship with God, first and foremost, then it's just natural. But actually, when we begin to start to step out of the boat, those moments when God asks you to to pray for your sick neighbor, those moments when he gives you a word of encouragement to share with your colleague, those moments when he's saying, I need you to get out of the boat. I need you to get to the end of you so you can discover the beginning of me. His power, his presence. And I'm convinced that, that part of how we orientate ourselves as we crave, how we orientate ourselves through that place of requiring as a necessity that it's going to take us from the safe places we've created and out into places of risk and faith. And that's where I think we should live. The normal Christian life, I I believe, exists in a place of risk and faith, a place where my natural ends and his supernatural begins. So I'm convinced that... um, as I've been stirred over the last couple of months around where God is creating answers and solutions to this city's problems. And as I look at individuals in the room, knowing that, that, um, that actually it, it, it is in part how we orientate ourselves towards God, that actually we would be committed in this process of seeking him to, to stir and fan the flame that we would crave something, that that would change the way we'd live life, the way we would orientate life. But in the midst of that, that we would recognize that we have deep need of him, that to go it alone in this thing called following Jesus just doesn't make sense. Because following Jesus requires 
Jesus. It requires his presence with us. It requires him with us. And so this morning I felt, um, you know, as we even, for some of us, it feels like a new season. You know, the, it feels like a new term starts. The sort of busyness of summer and being here, there and everywhere, for most of you will land in some regularity this week. And I felt stirred to, to challenges in the midst of setting uh, an aspects of the regularity, getting back to school, back, getting back to a normal routine, that in the minute that actually God would break into that and arrest some of the way that we orientate ourselves towards life. That we would orientate ourselves in such a way we would crave for him, crave for our connection with him. And in the midst of that, we would recognize our complete dependence and need of him for all that he's calling us to do and all that he's calling us to be. Amen? Why don't you stand? I want to pray.